Good morning. Good morning. It's good to see everybody this morning. Nobody showed up early that I know about. Everyone got the time change. We're always looking forward to uh, when we change the times. So the setup crew gets really big, really quick for one day. So, you guys hear me okay? Do I have it muted? How's that? Better? Yes? No? Maybe? Kind of? Say again? They're shaking their heads no. So, I think the battery died, guys. There's no power. Okay, I'll use this one on the ground here. Brian did start the day off saying, it's like, you've got a loud mouth, you don't really need a microphone, so. All right, one second. Could you mute number four really quick while I adjust this guy? hear me okay? Is that good? Yeah. We normally use a microphone really to help out yeah. outside so people have kids and whatnot. So this is Big Sunday, so all our kids are, are staying in here today. This is wonderful. And I promise not to preach too long. Okay. If I could get a roadie to get me a boom mic, it would be wonderful as well. Chris, can you be my roadie? I can. Uh, we'll just start here. Let's pray, because we're off to a great start already. So bow your heads, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you in the name of Jesus. Lord, we worship you. We thank you. Lord, would you please enlighten our eyes and our ears to your word. Lord, we just, we just pray that we would hear what the Spirit says this morning as we, uh, we continue in the Gospel of John that you inspired this man to write thousands of years ago that is still changing lives today. So we, we pray that the Word doesn't fall on ears that can't hear, Father God, but ears that are willing to hear and we're willing to be doers of this Word. We love you and thank you. In Jesus' name, the church said, Amen. Amen. So we're in John chapter 20. So if you have a Bible, uh, uh, we're, uh, we're, getting, we're almost done. We've been working through John this whole year. Thank you, sir. Wonderful. I appreciate you. appreciate you. Yeah, give him a hand. Yes. He's a full-time pastor, bass player, roadie, heck of a nice guy, and a pillar beard champion for like six years running right now. So. Excellent. Okay, so we're in John. We're going to start in verse 24 through. Tw- uh, I'm going to read up to 29. We're going to we're going to go up to verse 31. But if you haven't been with us, uh, Jesus, uh, he's lived a full life. We're at the end of John. He was crucified. He's risen from the dead, and he's appeared to Mary already. He's appeared to the other disciples, and now there was one guy that wasn't in the group, and, and Jesus is about to make himself known to him. So starting in verse 24, it says this, Now Thomas, one of the twelve called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord, but he said to them, Unless I see his hands, the mark of the nails, and place my finger into the mark of the nails, and place my hands into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, see that, eight days, that's a long time, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands and put your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. And Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Amen. So this is a a very, very, very famous story. Even um, out in the world, I don't know, uh, most of you, if not all of you, you know, we have jobs that we intermingle with non-Christians, and most people have heard the name Doubting Thomas. Raise your hand. You've heard Doubting Thomas? 
I was in a meeting about, oh, it was like three weeks ago. And uh, just for this trip, I, I ended up getting ready to head up to Northern Canada. And part of my job was to convince a group of people something, you know, for my job. And my boss, who's not a Christian, uh, he's like, uh, he goes, well, Mike, it's your job is to make them place their fingers in the nail holes. I was sitting there, my eyes got really big, and this is a non-Christian guy. I was like, how did you know that reference? He goes, well, everyone knows about Doubting Thomas. And it's just weird, right? It really just caught me off guard. And then, then of course, hey, did you go to church growing up? And I'm like, no. He goes, it's just, it is what it is. Like, leave me alone kind of thing. So I was like, yeah, I got off of it. But this is that story right there. So everybody knows about Doubting Thomas. So what we're going to do today, we want to, there is a lot going on here. I think this story is included uh, not just to roll Thomas under the bus, which the poor guy gets a bad rap, but we're actually going to see that he was not alone in this. And that means it had to have been included for, for a greater reason. So we're going to discover that this morning. Now, what I want to do is I kind of want to rehash very quickly the different appearances of Jesus. The first, does anyone know who was the first person that Jesus appeared to when he was risen from the grave? Mary Magdalene. That's exactly right. So this is found in uh, the same chapter, verse 18. And, and what happened is Mary saw Jesus. He'll be up on the screen. It says, Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, notice that plural, disciples, I have seen the Lord. And that he had said these things to her. So Jesus gave her a message. So after that, in, the, in John, in verse 19, we see that Jesus then appeared to the other disciples, minus Thomas. It says, on the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors were locked. Now the doors are locked because they're scared of the Jews, right? So they're hiding out because they just murdered Jesus, and these guys are hiding out. It says, the doors were locked, and the disciples, for the fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. And when he had said this, notice this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. So Jesus shows up, and then he, he offers them proof without them asking. Now, if we think about what's going to happen to Thomas, here's what happens. So Thomas isn't there. Jesus shows up. And next thing you see, hey, Tom, guess what? Jesus is alive, and we saw his hands and his side. Right? Now, if you walked into a room with your buddies, and everyone's like, hey, we just saw Jesus. We saw his hands and his side. What would you say? All right, come on, guys. Come on. Come on. Right? Are you serious right now? Right? Anybody else? Am I not the only one? Can you see why there might be some serious doubt going on here? Right? It's like, okay, first Mary, now you guys. Yuck, 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 yuck. Real funny, right? It's like you saw Jesus, right? And that's why Thomas says, like, unless I see him, unless I put my fingers in him, because Jesus showed him to the other disciples. So somehow in this conversation, the disciples mentioned to Thomas, we saw his hands in his side. So this idea of unless I see the hands inside, he's not looking for some kind of proof. He had heard about the proof that was already offered to everybody else. Do you see that? Pretty good stuff. Now, it should be noted that Mary did not have to see Jesus' hands inside. She's the only one that didn't see it, but she just received it right away, right? Jesus is like, Mary, and like her eyes are open. She's like, my Lord, my God. Called him Rabboni, right? Remember the story? And she's just blown away. And Jesus is like, don't cling to me. I haven't yet ascended to my father. So Mary has some awesome faith there. The disciples, and Thomas needed to see it. Now, we know from the other gospel accounts that... Um, they didn't believe Mary. The other disciples, all the disciples, did not believe Mary's report. In Mark 16, 9 through 11, it says this. Now when he arose early on the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, from whom he had cast out seven demons. She went and told those who had been with him, and they mourned and wept. But when they had heard that he was alive and had been seen by her, they would not believe it. So 
sounds like Thomas is getting framed right now because the other gospel writers lay out the idea that nobody believed Mary, right? It wasn't just Thomas that was doubting. It was all the disciples. And then when Jesus shows up in the gospel of Mark to see the disciples in verse 14, it says, afterward, he appeared to the 11 themselves and they were reclining at a table and he rebuked them for their unbelief and hardness of heart because they had not believed those who saw him after he had risen. There was multiple women that had seen Jesus at this point, right? So doubting Thomas, I mean, you feel bad for him. He did have doubts, but can, everybody was doubting, right? And I would venture to say we would all be doubting as well. If you saw a man crucified, you saw him get his side stabbed, you see him buried, it's going to be a tough thing to believe. This man is risen from the grave. Amen? Amen. All right. I also included Luke 24, 10, I think. This is worth noting. It says, Now when Mary Magdalene and, and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James, and the other women who were with them told these things to the apostles. So all those women saw Jesus. But the words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. An idle tale, right? So now Luke tells us there was multiple women that were trying to tell the disciples what was going on. And, of course, they did not believe. Now, this is really not the point of the text, but I, I put on here that we're going to have a little sidebar. We're gonna, I want to have a, just a very mini conversation about the testimony of women in the Old Testament. Uh, Craig Keener, in, in his Gospel uh, of John commentary, he says this, most of Jesus' contemporaries held little esteem for the testimony of women. This reflects the broader Mediterranean limited trust of women's testimony and speech, also enshrined in the Roman law. Some, though not all, Jewish writers condemned listening to women more generally. Now, this is highly fascinating, is that all of the gospel accounts included the testimony of women, despite the fact that culturally nobody cared. Do you see that? Now, this is an interesting tidbit, so you have to ask yourself, is why would God include this testimony? Because today, obviously, we include it. Right? These are first-hand accounts of the first people that saw Jesus. Now, I think when I, I think about the truthfulness of the Bible, like when these letters were written, is people would discount these women's testimony, right? So there's no reason, like if, you, if something is untrue, like I would not include the testimony. If I'm really trying to convince this, this, this world about Jesus, you include all the male testimony. But the Bible is awesome in the fact that it would include something that would be highly criticized and scrutinized back in the time of its writing, which I think is very awesome, right? And if we think about even our country, we just celebrated, just you know, last year, uh, the it's the 19th Amendment. You know what the 19th Amendment is? It allows women to vote. That's just 100 years old in this country, right? And God is awesome. He's including this testimony. And he's rebuking people for rejecting the testimony of women. And to me, this is just something very special about the Bible. It's special about Jesus. When we think about the testimony of women in the Bible and the role they played, it says Mary's faith, Jesus' mother, launched Jesus' ministry. Remember, she's the one that says, whatever he tells you to do, do it. He turned the water into wine because of Mary's faith. Amen? We see the Samaritan woman was the first person that Jesus revealed himself to, that he was the Christ, the Son of God. And through the Samaritan woman, she brought an entire town to Jesus. The gospel spread to non-Jewish people because of the faith of one woman. When Jesus was resurrected, the first people he appeared to was Mary and her group of women that were going to embalm him. Luke 8, 1-3 says that Jesus' ministry was financed through these very women. 
the Bible up until Jesus' ministry, it's a very male-driven. The Bible is a very male-driven story. And some people like to take that, people who don't read the Bible, and they like to really frame it this way, right? The patriarchy. You hear about these things, right? It's like, oh, this is a, a sexist thing. But really, when you dive into the Bible, you see God equally using and distributing gifts across everybody. And that's why this, this testimony of Mary in the Gospel of John and Luke and Mark and Matthew, phenomenal, right? Like that these people are re rejecting this testimony in real life and in the writing, and yet God preserves this powerful testimony and that Jesus chose him. He could have appeared to anybody first. Remember, they showed up to the tomb and the tomb was empty, right? Jesus could have rolled up to anybody. He could have went to the Pharisees. He could have went to Peter. He could have went to John. Jesus is very deliberate in all the things he does. Nothing happens by accident in the life of Jesus. Would you agree with that? And so we have to think and say, why Mary? Why? Right? Uh, we all know the answer because God's kingdom is an upside-down kingdom. He who is greatest is actually the lowest, and he who is the lowest is actually the greatest. It's powerful stuff here. Okay, that's my little mini sidebars for reading these accounts. Now back to the tale at hand. I think Thomas unfairly gets labeled doubting Thomas, as we see everybody was doubting. Nobody believed the testimony of the women. But I think that John highlights Thomas. The other Gospels don't really point out Thomas, uh, uh, his lack of faith. The other Gospel writers actually call out everybody. And I think John does this is not to insult Thomas, but it's to highlight verse 29 that says, Blessed are those who have not yet seen and yet believed. John here is trying to make a point. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. In verse 27, he gives Thomas the command, do not disbelieve, but believe. And we know, we're going to read the next two verses now that of our scripture this morning, is this is the whole reason John says it was written. He says, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but they are written so that, what? You may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and notice this, and that by believing you may have life in his name. John expressly says the only reason I'm writing this is not for historical record. I'm writing this so you can believe. This is a, is a gospel that is chock full of firsthand testimony, right? We, we studied this out that, that John saw Jesus with Pilate. John saw him crucified. Like these guys are there, they're watching these things out, and he's like, This is the record. I've and if you read 1 John and 2 John and 3 John, he's like, concerning the word of life we've handled, we've touched, we've seen with our own eyes. He's pleading with people. All these people that saw this, that are hiding in these locked doors now, are going to be filled with a spirit of boldness if you read the book of Acts. And they go out to a world now who will reject their testimony and will kill them for their faith. Nobody dies for something that is false, right? We all like pulling pranks and, and hey, guess what? I saw... Uh, Conan O'Brien is here. He's in the other room, and he wants to meet everybody afterwards. Right? But if somebody held a gun to my head and said, yeah, is that true? Yeah, yeah, that's a lie. But I don't know why Conan O'Brien <laughs> Really, the, the truth is, because I was thinking of Michael Scott when he thought he saw somebody, and then Conan O'Brien walked out. If you want to know how the train of thought got started, there's something. Okay. But my point is, is if you're going to willingly go to the crosses, you die for the truth, right? No, I, I'm not going to recant what I've seen. So here's what I want to do today in the time we have together is we want to talk about the believer and unbelief. Now, in our culture, people say that faith is the opposite of reason. 
that reason is the opposite of faith, right? Like, hey, you have to have faith in something because there's no way to reason about this. Is that would you say that's fair? Like when we think of what Americans say about faith, that means you're taking something without any facts. You just gotta believe it, right? You just gotta believe it. There's just there's no way to prove it, so you have to have faith. Would you say that's a good definition of faith? Sure. I think so. I've been around the block and it's like, oh you believe something and you know, it's like, oh, you believe in God. It's just like believing in the tooth fairy. There's, there's no proof. But I want to argue this morning, this is not what the Bible actually says about faith. And it's pretty easy for me. I think of it like being scared of flying. I wrote a couple of facts here. In flying, I, so I fly a lot. Like pre-COVID, every every Monday I fly. I'm actually after work and headed to the airport. After work, after church, I'm headed to the airport right now uh, to fly out to Houston. So I fly every week. And I fly hundreds of thousands of miles a year. Um, for what I do for a living. But the odds are there's one fatal accident. One one person will die for every 16 million flights. That's the odds of dying. Uh, and that's not one airplane crash. That's one person will die with 16 million flights. If we compare that to miles, there's one million flight miles equals zero deaths. But if a car drives one million miles, you'll get 1.27 fatalities and 80 injuries. So reason says that it's safer to fly than safer to drive. Have you heard this? Yes, it is, it is true. But more people, a lot more people are scared to fly than to drive, right? And I know a lot of people like that. Even in my industry where we, we live on airplanes, there's a couple guys that will leave four days early because they're scared to fly. Now listen to this. So reason says it's safer to fly. So reason leads to faith. I have faith that this airplane is going to take off and land. If I didn't have faith, I'm not getting on that airplane. I really don't want to die. I have no death wish, and an airplane crash sounds like the worst thing on the entire planet. I was an F-16 guy in the Air Force, a crew chief, and I got to fly in it, and I remember just not being scared at all because I had a parachute strapped to my back. You're in the fighter, and it's like, I have an ejection seat. So it's like, let it rip, right? So I hit turbulence now, and I still kind of white knuckle it, even though I fly every week. It's like the plane starts jumping up and down, but, you know, turn my music down. <laughs> but I'm like reminding myself, it's like, oh, nobody's ever died from turbulence. It's just a, yeah. it's a scary event, but this plane is going to land. And the odds are, it's like, well, if you drive somewhere, you're going to die. So reason actually leads to faith in reality, right? So when you have, have faith in something, you're taking a group of facts, and then you are making a logical conclusion. This is what this means. So faith, the first thing I want to point out is we're focusing on unbelief here because Thomas didn't believe, but when we see, you can reason when you hear testimony, when you think about things. Flying is, I don't know the qualifications of the pilot. I don't know where they learned. I don't know who maintained the aircraft. I don't know who made the engines. And at one point, I was actually an AMP certified guy. I know airframes. I know power plants. I, I know these things. But I don't know this about this aircraft I'm getting onto. And I just have, I have faith that this thing is going to work, right? I don't go check the maintenance records. Hey, you know, this thing gets 10,000 hour, you know, overhaul of the third stage turbine fan. You know, I don't care. I have faith, right? You see what I'm saying here? I know I'm beating this point home. But I want you to see that when you have faith, it's not because there's no supporting facts and that you don't have reason. Christianity does not ask you to check your brain at the door, right? That you walk into a building and some guy talks to you and then you just check out all reason and you're just, you just eat everything I tell you. That's not Christianity. That's not the Bible, right? God doesn't want you to check your brain, right? He wants your brain. He, wants, he made you smart for a reason. We're rational human beings, right? We have to think about this. This is going to be very important as we, we progress here. So in discussion, Christianity, faith, and reason are somehow separate. But I, here's what I think. 
and this is not my original idea, but it's that I think that it's actually, uh, it's not faith versus reason, but it's actually belief versus believing something else. It's not belief versus unbelief, but belief versus another belief. Now, I, I have an example here, and it's from uh, the book uh, Severe Mercy by Sheldon Bonacan. And he was a young guy who went to college over in England, and he, he wrote correspondence to C.S. Lewis, ended up getting to, uh, getting to meet C.S. Lewis, which I think would be really cool, right? So he uh, gets saved, gets uh, mentored by C.S. Lewis, and he writes his book, and the book is rather sad. It's about him, uh, his uh, relationship with C.S. Lewis, and uh, just beating the love of his life, and he just loves this woman like mad, and she ends up dying, and it's him processing his grief, and, you know, all this stuff. But when he's talking about his conversion, he says this, uh, on the quote here, it says, when it came to believing in Christ, there was a gap between what was possible and then what could be proved. It was possible that Jesus is God and that it is all true. It's possible, but can it be proved? I can't prove it. So there's this gap. How am I supposed to cross this gap if I'm going to stick my whole life on the risen Christ? I would like some proof. I wanted certainty. I wanted letters of fire across the sky, and I got none. So I continued to hang out about the edge of the gap. But then came my second breakthrough, and this is it. The position was not, as I had been comfortably thinking all these months, that there was only a gap before me. My God, there was also a gap behind me now, too. There might not be certainty that Christ was God, and so that would, that would require a leap. I also had no certainty or proof anymore that he was not God. And so therefore, to go back would require a leap of faith as well. I saw that I could not now reject Jesus without a great leap of faith, as I once saw that leap of faith behind me. So I flung myself over the gap towards Jesus. So what we see here is when we're looking at belief versus unbelief is when we say we don't believe something, that's because we actually believe something else, right? So truth, we kind of weigh it in our hands, like, well, this is true or this is untrue. I said, no, I actually believe this. And so I, I love how he puts this. It's like, well, boy, I don't, I can't see the holes in his hands on the side. You can't physically see Jesus. I'm going to have to, you know, have this testimony. And then he realizes, like, well, it takes the same amount of faith because there's no proof that he's not God. I think that's very valid, right? There's just no proof that he's not. I know I think there is proof that he is. But we realize that when people make decisions, they're choosing to believe something over something else. Right? And I'm not going to tell you what I think. And I, please, like, you know, I don't, I don't like politics in church, but we can say the same thing about the vaccine. Right? People believe this, some people believe this. And it's dividing, it's ripping us apart, right? We're all looking at the same data. Some people choose to believe some data over other data. And the other person will believe the exact opposite. And so this is just human nature, right? So we, we call it unbelief, but we really just believe something else. And I think that's not true, but I, I think this is right. And we stake our lives on these decisions, right? We stand by it. And sometimes we can be convinced because somebody brings other proof. It's like, oh, these are what we call rational and reasonable human beings, right? Changing our mind, which seems to be less and less common. But when, when presented with new information, we should be able to take that information, process this information, right? and then change beliefs. Now, in science, this happens all the time because we always get new information. As technology increases and, and, and study, we learn new things, right? So it wasn't too long ago people thought the, the Earth was flat, right? New information was presented, and some people changed their mind, and some people said, no way. Those people are still around. But the point is, is 
most people, like presented with the data to change their mind. Right? And some people refuse that data. So when we think about us as in church, it's not very popular to talk about doubt and unbelief. Because we're told, at least I was told, in my formative years, I, I didn't get saved until my 20s. I mean, the first 15 years of my life, it was told like, well, doubt is sin, right? Like, you've got to get rid of that doubt. You can't, you can't question something. Is anyone raised like that where you can't question anything in the Bible? A couple of us? Three of us. That's amazing that you guys all had such nice churches that you could, your questions were welcome. But mine weren't. Right? Like a few questions like, does it really work like this? Is that what the scripture really means? Does God really think like this? Boy, you'd be, I would, you'd be sequestered, but the corner's like, hey, don't talk so loud. Right? You're going to disrupt the faith of everybody. And the Bible actually, we're, we're going to get into a couple things, but it, it actually welcomes that. It, it welcomes the scrutiny. And doubt and unbelief is part of the human experience. Has anyone here ever had doubt in the Bible, in God, in what you read? Okay, uh, that's, I appreciate that much more. A lot more hands are up there, right? This is natural. It's because you're a thinking human being. Now, I don't get paid from the church. I haven't been paid in years. So when I convince you, when I try to convince you of the truth of the scriptures, I do it because I'm, I'm, I myself am convinced. You know, we're not a cult. I don't want anything from you, right? I'm just trying to point you to the risen Christ who's changed my life. And I have visible fruits of a life changed. The life serving them. Right? I want nothing from you. I don't take the offerings from you. I don't ask you for money. I'm doing quite fine. Thank you very much. Right? I don't ask you for, I don't ask you to pledge your loyalty to me. Right? Sign a statement. None of that stuff matters to me. Like my life has been changed. Therefore, I want you to experience the freedom I have in Christ. Why does that matter? It's because I would say that your doubts and your questions are always welcome. We have questions at the end of every service. Right? Some things in the Bible, of years and years of me studying this thing, I've been to Bible college. I, I'm not the smartest man you ever meet. You, you already know that. Those of you that know me. But I am sincere in my search, and I have yet to be disappointed when I read and discover the Bible. Right? When I put the effort into it, because I'm always rewarded with an answer in this Bible. So, I do this because if you're like me, you have questions, and there's deeper things that we can't, it's hard to discover on your own. And I do this is because this I think that personally, Michael Young, the reason I exist is to help people do this. Okay? I'm not a deep thinker, but I, boy, I like to really think deeply about the Bible and then answer your questions and, and do these things. Okay, enough said. Um, but I, I do think we should not move away from doubts because getting our doubts answered actually increases our faith. That once we reason through that, Reason does not drive us away from the Bible. Reason, reason draws us closer to the Bible. That's my whole point. This is the whole setup. Right? The more you examine it and you, you criticize it and you put it under scrutiny, you're going to find out that the Bible stands up under the scrutiny. And therefore your faith increases. And you just get to, this is what God ultimately wants from us. So I want to show you a few things. Go to, if you have a Bible, this might be kind of weird for those doing the screens in the back. So I just put Psalm 73 because I, I don't know where I'm going to go in Psalm 73. I'm going to jump around a little bit. And you can just listen to the beautiful sound of my voice. It might be on the screen. It might not be on the screen. But Psalm 73 is written by a man who's having a faith crisis. You might not have known this was in the Bible. It says, Truly, God is good to Israel and to those who are of a pure heart. But as for me, 
okay, we can just stop right there. He's like, God is good to Israel, but as for me, right? He said, my feet had almost stumbled and my steps had nearly slipped. Verse 3, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they had no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They're not in trouble as the others. They're not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is, a, is their necklace and violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out to their fatness and their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. And they set their mouths against the heavens and their tongue struts through the earth. Therefore, his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? And there's no knowledge in the Most High. Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. All in vain, I have kept my heart clean and I have washed my hands in innocence. For all day long, I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. You see what's happening here. He's seeing the wicked prosper, right? Has anyone ever looked at just evil people? Like, boy, look at me struggling and look at them going. Isn't this something? God, I, and he's saying here, he's like, I've kept myself clean. But every morning I get rebuked. I have nothing. I'm watching these, these losers win. Surely God is good to Israel. But as for me, uh-uh, I almost slipped. I almost lost it. I almost walked away from all of this because I saw something. I saw a great injustice. I saw the evil prosper. And I saw the good being punished. Right? So he's having a crisis right now. And he's like, hey, that's sure. I'm sure God is good. But for me, I can't reconcile these two things. And this is a major objection we get in Christianity, right? Like, hey, if God is good and there is a God, why is there so much suffering and evil in this world? Now, I have a great answer for that, but I've got a lot of material to go through. And you can talk to me afterwards, and I'll set it up for you. It's a wonderful answer that I stole from somebody else. <laughs> but the point of the matter is, is that this is an objection. And if we're being honest, we've all fought that, right? It's like, God, this is so easy for you to fix. And then you start wondering, if it's so easy, why doesn't he just do it? What's the big game all about? Why do I have to watch kids suffering and dying? Why do people have to be raped and murdered? Why does cancer have to ravage families? Why does domestic abuse have to? Why do nations have to destroy other nations? Why? why? We all ask these things. Like, why? Like, when we see, you know, where countries go in politics, like, if you just shake your head, it's like, it doesn't need to be this hard, but yet here we are, right? This hard. And the psalmist saying the same thing. It's like, man, this is this is setting me off track. Like this, I, I, I can't really reconcile this. He says in verse 15, he says, you know, if I said this, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. He feels like, I can't even talk about this because all of Israel is saying, truly, God is good to the pure in heart. He's like, I couldn't say this, right? It would upset everybody. Verse 16, but then I thought, how to understand this? And it seemed to me a worrisome task. He can't put it together. He said, until, verse 17, I looked to the sanctuary of God. He said, then I discerned their end. You set them in a slippery place, and you make them fall to ruin. Now, you remember, he said he was in a slippery place. Remember that? He said, truly, God is good to Israel. He goes, I was in a slippery place. I almost fell when I noticed and had envy of the wicked. He said, but then I went to church. Then I had this epiphany that you've actually set them in a slippery place. He saw what their end was going to be. And the rest of Psalm 73, he actually reasons out, actually, you know, it's better to be me. When I think about their end and their short lifespan, he just had to get himself together, right? He's like, actually, I went and I really thought about this. 
and I reason. I, I, I get what's happening here, right? So he noticed that he actually found his faith recovered when he went to the sanctuary, when he went to the temple, when he went to church, right? Because there's something about us coming together and reasoning things together, right? Like when you see something, a great injustice and a great evil, one way you can do is you can stew about it at your house. But does that do anything for you? Now, sometimes you just got to go and reason with somebody else. Now, walk me through this. Talk to me about this. It's the same thing when you have something against somebody. Going and talking to them, right? Bottling it up and, and trashing people and becoming bitter and becoming that awesome person who, who spouts all your opinions on Facebook and whatever people are doing. Do people, you guys know, I, you, this sounds like pride and arrogance yeah. that's coming right now. I've never had a Facebook. What was that? Okay. I've never had a Facebook. And I really am very, very proud of that. I'm awesome. You've never had one either? Audrey, you're awesome. Okay. Really march in the back. We have four people. Brian, my man. Look at this. Look at all these people coming out right now. It's like, I've never had Facebook. Yes. Anyways, my point of the matter is, is I purposely got that because it just looks like a place where you, you will think less of people. Like, oh, I thought I loved you until I read what you wrote. And as a pastor, I don't want to know what you really think. And so I think it works out for me. Things like one of those Nobody had Yeah, yeah. I heard it's a real thing, right? Yeah, that, that's real. Um, but the point of the matter is, is that's what people do these days, right? Like, you, you think something, you see an injustice. We have to say something. We're wired that way. It's hard to see something and not say something, right? Not to spout the government's line and see something and say something. My point is, is this is how we... we Think about these things, right? Like, how do I process this great injustice that I'm saying? And his answer is, man, I went to the house of the Lord, right? And I and I, I contemplated, I reasoned through it, and I saw I saw what their end is going to be. And when you can see somebody's end, it's a lot easier to forgive and to move on and to love your enemies, right? Like you can actually process it. All right. It's not the point of the message, but I, I want you to start thinking critically about this, what, what the Bible says about it. Now, another thing that happens to us in doubt and which drives us towards disbelief or believing that God doesn't answer respond, is how many people have prayed and God never answered? Nobody. Everybody's 100% prayer. Okay, two, three. It's not, I'm not gonna, we're not, Trace isn't writing down your name. Yeah, look at these doubters. No, all of us, I would imagine, if you've ever prayed, we've all had prayers that have been unanswered. Is that fair? Would we say most of us? Yes, yes. Have you ever prayed and felt like God isn't listening? Have you ever, ever seen things in your life happening and you're thinking, it just shed doubt. It's like, is God real? Because if he was real, would this be happening in my life? Anybody. And everybody. All of us. Right? Because bad things happen to good people. This is another great argument against Christians. Not a great argument. I think it's a stupid argument. But it's a great, as in large argument against people arguing against God. It's like, well, he doesn't answer. I tried praying once. I tried to talk to him. You know what happened? Zero. But the Bible also addresses these things. Because the founder and the author of our faith also prayed that nothing happened. You remember Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane? He felt like, he's like, God, why have you forsaken me? He's crying out to him. God, you've forsaken me. Have you ever felt forsaken by God? We've all felt that way. I've spent months of my life, it didn't cause a crisis of faith, but I probably have three or four major testimonies of God moving and doing something awesome in my life. And one of them involved the loss of everything. And I was actually on staff as a pastor. And it was right when, if you remember the, the great uh, 
Great Depression. No, the, the big recession of like 2010, 11, yeah, in that ballpark. I went from making okay money, not great, I mean, you're never gonna get rich, well, some people get rich as pastors, but most people never get rich become a pastor. I was an associate on staff, and our pay went to nothing because the church, the people quit making money, the people quit giving, and we had like months where I would make like 800 bucks in San Diego. I'm not a retired military person. That's all we had. So we lost our house. We lost our cars. Audrey and I moved into a duplex. Our kids were living. We lost everything. I got sued by take. I tried to be a nice Christian. Right? I was like, I can't afford two cars anymore. So I took my car back to the dealership. I was like, look, I hadn't missed a payment yet. I was like, I'm gonna not going to be able to pay this next month. So I'm going to give it back to you now. Because I think that's just unfair as a Christian for me to keep this car until you have to repossess it. And I also have something against people who possess things. Keep my heart right. And so they said, yeah, we appreciate you. And then they took the car back and turned and sued me for turning it back in. I was just like, everything in my life fell apart. Everything. And I was like, man, God, I have never missed a tithe. I give. So I was standing on my own righteousness. You see what's going to happen. I just, I've been out of the Air Force a couple of years. Prayed and prayed, nothing happened. Month later, this can't happen. We keep getting deeper and deeper in debt. So my wife, you know, we have to, our kids are very young, and my wife is is working, and, and we're having spaghetti with no meat. Now that sounds good to you, but this is a nightmare to me. It's like we can't afford the beef. This is how poor we are. I am a pastor, and I'm eating out of the church's food locker. I'm just ashamed, right? So we're going to leave church, and I'm hoping somebody brought something good back there because I'm going to go grab it before we give to the homeless people. I mean, this is how broke we were. This happens month after month after month. They plan on telling me this, but I think it matters. And at night, I would lay there, like we, we went through Christmas, and I could only get my kids jump ropes and color books. If you remember, I've never been this broke. <laughs> I didn't grow up with a lot, but now it's me being responsible. And I would lay on my carpet face down and pray and cry. And I can't provide well for my family. I'm ashamed. Deeply, deeply ashamed. And that's our question. Why did I get into ministry? You know, I didn't go to Bible college. I really thought when I went to Bible college that being a pastor is reading your Bible in the garden with a cup of coffee contemplating. It sounds ridiculous, but that was my it was my fantasy. That being a pastor is actually tough work in your helping people, broken people. And so this happens for months. And then I finally learned a lesson. So I realized I was going through the suffering. I'm like, God, I must have missed the call. You must not have wanted me to be a pastor. Like I've done something horribly wrong. And finally, to wrap it up very quickly, I realized I was treating the tithe and giving like God owed me something because I would use the scriptures like, hey, if you give, I will give you, right? Like, hey, bring the tithe in the storehouse and I'll always bless you. And I started treating God like a genie in my life that if I obeyed a command that God was obligated to obey his word. I thought this is how this worked. And so I had just made a lot of bold plans against God. God, I did this. My prayer for months was, God, I've given you everything. You said you would do this. Why aren't you doing it? And it just felt like, have you ever prayed? It just felt like I just hit the concrete wall. I prayed, I prayed, I So one night, again, I'm on, I'm on my dirty carpet in Vista because the guy I leased it from didn't wash the carpet. And I'm laying there crying. God, show me what's wrong. And I opened up the Bible, and I, and I saw God wanting, uh, giving out of a cheerful heart. All of a sudden, all this light poured into me, and I realized I'm treating God like a transaction. Just me. Just, I read, you would do this, and I just saw my whole life is so wicked because 
I was only obeying God to get something. I was a greedy Christian. I was serving him for the benefit of serving him. Not serving him because I loved him. I was a pastor. You think you, you would know these things? And I felt terrible. I repented. I mean, I, I was bawling. Like, God, I've missed it. I've missed the whole heart of Christianity. Friends, I tell you, I'm not exaggerating. Within a week, uh, I decided to go out with the workforce. I got a job that paid me well into the six figures. They bought me a brand new vehicle. The company that was suing me randomly decided not to sue me. Other terrible things that happened. I had the government seize a tax return, which I couldn't use the money because I said I did something wrong. All in the same week, the, the IRS calls up and said, yeah, we made a mistake. Here's your money back. All after repenting. Now, this was months of agonizing. I felt like God wasn't there. So what's the point of the story is sometimes God doesn't answer because you have to learn a very valuable lesson. That God always answers. And Jesus crying out, why have you forsaken me? We cry out, why have you forsaken me? God has never forsaken us. He's never left us. Ever. Not once. And the Bible gives us promises that are true. That if you pray, I hear you. If you pray in the name of Jesus, the power of the blood has never been lost. It can never be lost through your sin, your ignorance, or your stupidity. But God has a great, great plan. And the plan is to bring us to a point of trust and faith. That when it sounds like he's not answering and everything is falling apart, that you don't doubt his presence or his provision. He's there. He's doing something for a reason. And I look at my life. I would not, I would be so wayward right now in my theology and my life if I hadn't learned this lesson. If I hadn't gone through that suffering. And I look back on it now, and I'm kind of wondering about this. Like, why can I have this experience? Well, we can talk about it. You remember that? Remember buying the kids jump ropes because we had to go to the dollar store and this is just what we could do? Right? We, we, God never left us. Did I die? No. Could I have lost a couple of hands? Absolutely. Right? And all that testing did was make me lean on him all the more. But it seems he's not there. God is not after our comfort. He's after our, our faith. Right? When things are going south and you can't see him, it's getting darker and darker. He's after us laying on You see that? I didn't want to tell that story because we've got stuff to talk about. But in, 16, in 1 Timothy 6.12, here's, here's the crux of the whole point. Is we're encouraged, look at this, it says, Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of eternal life to which you were called about, which you have made a good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Our job as Christians is to fight the good fight of faith. We're called believers and not unbelievers. And our whole goal, if, if, if I had to put it very succinctly, our goal is to learn to stay in faith. That's what the fight of faith is. It's not the fight of doctrine, right? That's ridiculous. The fight is to keep us in faith, to keep us out of doubt and unbelief. Unbelief will drive us away from God. Actually, this is the last scripture. I don't have you jump there because it makes sense there. Hebrews 3.12, if you jump down to that one, thank you. You guys are on it. It says, take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. When the world tries to chip away our faith, and we, we don't want to confront these doubts and this, this unbelief, it leads us to what the Bible says is an unbelieving, evil heart. And it leads us away from the living God. We want to build up faith. We want to address these things. If you have doubts, you have concerns like Thomas Get after those things, right? We don't let these things fester. Because after a while, then you start reasoning through other things, unqualified sources. 
if you read, and I like to listen to things like modern atheist debates against Christians and all these kind of things, these are not super educated men. Like, they're just people that are trying to frame, I think, different, different arguments of like, well, what about this? What about this? You know? Could God himself make a rock so big that he himself could not lift it? Ha-ha, therefore he's not God kind of things, right? Like circular reasoning and all these kind of things. Well, you can go down that rabbit trail, and after a while you've got no anchor to truth, right? And it's like, well, it's just belief. For, I'm believing this guy versus believing the testimony of this versus believing a guy like me. You know me. You've seen, well, some of you haven't seen my election. It's like, like I said, there's a reason why I said, like, I don't take anything from you. I don't get paid. I don't, I don't want anything from you. I'm not trying to sell you Amway or get you into my MLM. I'm not trying to do anything. I just, my life has changed. I'm forever grateful. And I want to tell you about the man who did this. Right? That's why I do what I do. You know, actually the only person that knew me pre-really saved was my wife. If you think I'm weird now, you should have. should have met me in the 90s. But in Hebrews 11.6, it says this. It says, without faith, it is impossible to please him. Hebrews 11.6, without faith, it is impossible to please him. It doesn't say it's hard to please God. It says it's impossible. God is after our faith. He's after our belief. If you do a study, you've heard me say this, go study the miracles of Jesus. Most of the time, he's asking people, do you believe I'm able to do this? Jesus, would you heal my son? Do you believe I'm able to do this? Right? He goes to raise Lazarus. Even to ask Mary, he's like, hey, the son of man gives life to whom he wants. And he, and he asks Lazarus' sister Mary, he's like, do you, believe, do you believe I'm able? She's like, yes, I do. He's always asking. The Bible actually says Jesus went to a town and says he could do no mighty major miracles because of, people, because of the people's lack of faith. You say, well, God can do whatever he wants. And it's like, well, there's interesting cases when people didn't believe and God doesn't do it. James says, like, you have not because you ask not. Right? He says, he who doubts is like a wave driven by the sea. He says, if you don't believe, and James 1 says, don't let that man think he's going to get anything from God. If we're going to ask, ask, you have to believe. Um, it's not on the screen. Go really quickly. Go to Hebrews 11. If you have your Bibles. Hebrews 11. Let's have a this. would be a good way to shut this thing down. Hebrews 11 is what people will call the faith chapter. And, uh, a lot of people think Hebrews is actually uh, a sermon. It's one of the first sermons recorded in the Bible. The way it's written, it's actually a, a, a writing of someone preaching. It's very fascinating. So if you think I preached for a long time, it says Paul preached so long, people fell asleep in the window, fell out, and died. <laughs> Miss Joe. Uh, Hebrews 11, it, I'm not going to read the whole thing. It says, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the, con the conviction of things not seen. It says, for by it people of old receive their, their commendation. By faith we understand the universe is created by the word of God, and so that what is seen is not made of the things that are visible. By faith Abel offered a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain. That's verse 4. Let me just jump here. So it's recounting all the major characters of their faith. In verse 7 he says, By faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. Verse 24, By faith Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. 29, By faith the people crossed the Red Sea on dry land. But the Egyptians, when they attempted to do the same, were drowned. Verse 31, by faith, Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. I mean, it's just saying it's like all these people's faith is what God was pleased with, right? Without faith, it is impossible to please him. 
And we go back and, and Hebrews 11 says, look, this is why God was pleased. Right? Killing the first son of promise. That's faith, right? God stopped it. And it's wild because God is, I mean, the Old Testament says just countless times about, like, you shouldn't kill children. Guys, if you want to know what God thinks about killing kids, he's not cool. But then God tells him to kill Isaac. Right? Like, it's just weird things to think about. Okay, verse 32, this was how we'll end this thing. And the writer says, And what more shall I say? For time would fail fail me to tell of Gideon and Barak and Samson and Japheth, and David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouth of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, and made strong out of weakness, became mighty men of war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release, so they might rise again to a better life. And, uh, and others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned and they were sawn in two. They were killed with a sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, and mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves and earth. So Hebrews 11 is telling us, yeah, women received back their dead, armies were raised, enemies were vanquished and crushed. Then it was like, but some through faith also got sawed in two, murdered, burnt, burned at the stake. And so we have two very different outcomes of faith, but they were both faith. You see that? Some faith, some people, like God in their life, as they vanquish armies, they rise up and they do things, and the dead are raised. And some people's faith leads them to be sawn in two. How does this work? Well, the reason why I bring this up is because being in faith is not proof that everything is going to go perfect. Right? Because Hebrews 11, it, it does this, this list of heroes. These guys did it. Yes, yes, yes. Sawn in two. Wait, time because we can pump ourselves up. If I have faith, well, I can do anything. Because Jesus said, whoever has faith, you could say unto this mountain, be cast in the sea, and it shall be done unto you. Right? He says that that if, if you believe, anything is possible. Like faith, faith is wonderful, and God wants it. But some people, when they express their faith, it leads them right to death. Because that's the plan. That's it. Right? God is after our faith. He's not after our and so the idea when God is not moving and we have doubts and we have questions like Thomas, like, unless I see this, he said, I'm never going to believe. Friends, as an elder and a pastor of this church, I encourage you, you can't have that attitude. You go to the Bible and we're going to, you're going to see, you're going to see the hand of God move, but you need to understand how he moves. And because things don't go the way you want, it doesn't mean that God is not moving. Amen. Because you have to take in the whole account of the Bible. Jesus crying out, God, why have you forsaken me? When you're praying and you feel like that, just think, I'm joining Jesus in the garden right now. I am feeling forsaken, but I'm not forsaken. Right? Did God leave Jesus in the ground? No. He raised him up with an outstretched arm and power of the Spirit. Amen? He led captivity captive. Right? When he came out of the grave, the Bible says hundreds of people came out with him. Did you know that? We need to talk about that sometime. That's weird. Right? That Jesus wasn't the only one that came out of the ground right there. A bunch of other dudes came out. And so they walked around town. People knew who they were. That's craziness right there. You might be saying, I, that, see, that's what we're talking about. That's what I don't believe right there. Right? Well, we can talk about that because that's there for a reason. 
don't let these little pesky things, like, you go out into the world all day and our faith is questioned, it's slammed, it's critiqued, and you watch the news, and, and as time goes on, it's mocked more and more. Even in the 90s, like, I was born in the 70s, and people used to, just by nature, would respect the office of the pastor. People that weren't Christians, like, you walk in and you're a pastor, people treated you with a certain amount of respect and dignity. Right? So when I was on staff, uh, we did a couple things, like clergy things. You have this little clergy cards because if the police called you, like you had a traffic death or something, you had to go do. God has never had to do it. Yeah, they let you into these places. And now it's like, it, you actually kind of get rid of people. It's like, oh, oh you, this is your profession? You do this for real? And we have to be able to know how to reason these things out. We have to be able to know how to take a, a, an intelligent question. When people ask you questions, they, and maybe they're just being sincere. Like, how does this work? And you don't know. Don't let the enemy use that against you. Your battle is not with flesh and blood. It's to fight the good fight of faith. And it's not tricking yourself to believe something that's not true. It is reason leads to faith. And you can actually stop and think critically about these things. And you can read these stories and we can get us there. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, uh, again, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your, your grace. We thank you for your mercy. Lord, you... You've given us a story of Thomas. We see. He just straight up said, I'm not going to believe unless I see these things. And Jesus, you said, blessed are those who believe who have not seen. And over 2,000 years later, there's been countless men and women who have believed without sin, relying on your spirit, relying on the testimony, relying on your goodness and your great grace. What we look to you now, Father, is our prayer is to help us to increase our faith. You know, the faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. And we've heard your word, Lord God. Lord, we bring our doubts and our, uh, our areas we haven't trusted you. We bring it to you right now. And that we know that your promises are true. And that your word is true. Jesus, you said you are the way, the truth, and the life. You were this light in this dark world, and the people saw the light. He said, the darkness never and did not comprehend it. But you've shown that light in our hearts, and we've seen it, and we've, we've reached out to it. Because of your great grace and your spirit and your mercy, you've given us that measure of faith. We pray that we would grow in this grace, Father, that we would grow in faith and boldness. You give us eyes to see and, and hearts to understand your word, Father God, that you've placed amongst us teachers, people to teach us and expound the word to us, Lord God, and that you've given us ample, ample proof of not only your existence, but the infallibility and the great power of your word. Your word teaches that those that come to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of them who diligently seek him. It's a requirement to come to you just to believe that you are. And we say that you are. You are the I am. You are the Alpha and the Omega. Our faith declares that we understand that it was you there in the beginning. That you created all things through the power of, the wor of your word. That you are the one that raises the dead. You are the one who has saved us from our sin. And you are the one who is coming. Amen. Well, would you stand on your feet? Let's sing. Uh...
a song of praise and adoration in response to his, his great grace and great love.